This is JU Israel Teachers Lounge, where we reach out to current Gap Year students, alumni, and any interested listeners, keeping you connected to what's happening in Israel and giving you insight behind the headlines. I'm your host, Senior Israel Educator Michael Unterberg, here with, as always, co-host Alan Goldman, who's the Director of JU Israel. How's it going, Alan? It's going well, Mike. All right. And we're here this week with Matt, who's Israel Educator and Producer, Matt Littman. How's it going, Matt? It's going great. Thank you, Mike. And we're recording today at Ben Wallach Music Productions. We're back in our po- from our holiday break yeah. with... Achari uh, Achagim, after the holidays. Everything in Israel that you try to do is... Well, we'll, we'll start after the holidays. So we're yeah. starting to record now in a home studio, in Ben Wallach's uh, recording studio. New uh, technology and some hopefully new ideas that you'll enjoy. You'll let us know what you think. We want to start off this week... With a series of last year, we had a bunch of anniversaries. Yeah, tons of them. Tons of them, and so we felt like this year we felt really bad for. Right, and then we realized we got plenty of anniversaries this year. So yeah. we're going to start Isn't off. Isn't there an anniversary every year? It's just no <laughs> significant that, one. That's a pretty good. point. That is true. <laughs> the eleventh, the twelfth, the thirteenth. We're talking about like round numbers or fives. Multiple we're looking fives. for round numbers. This year's it's fives. Last yeah. year it was the tens. This, then now we're into fives. And of major impactful turning point yeah. events in Israel's history. Right, right. That still have repercussions today. Absolutely. Yeah. So that, for instance, if we were doing like the anniversary of the Lavon affair, that's always my example of an obscure Israeli history yeah. thing, which was huge. And became obscure because it didn't have lasting impact. Right. Today, what we want to talk about is the 1973 Yom Kippur War, which is how many years ago? That is 45 years ago. That's a long time. Yeah, yeah. Um, but not quite so long that I don't remember it. Uh, I have, okay, so it's definitely before Matt's time. I was not even born yet. Yeah, I have vague memories of my family being worried. Uh-huh. So I remember a neighbor who was a couple years older than me, who's actually a, a rabbi today in, a, in, in the world and a Jewish leader, um, who was collecting newspapers to recycle to send the money to Israel. Wow. That, that's my memory of it. Because <laughs> it's a kid's perspective. Yeah. You sure. see, yeah, we were, we were very, very young. Now, I find that in general, people talk a lot about 67, about the Six-Day War. It obviously reshaped the Middle East in very dramatic ways. By the way, not only people, me, when I teach in class and I have to make a decision, so the Six-Day War is something that has to be taught. Well, yeah, if, you're, if, you're, if you want students to understand what people will be grappling with, let's say on college campuses, then 67, the Six-Day War... Israel conquering the West Bank, Gaza, the Golan is going to have the impact that it's going to drive the conversations. 73 gets talked out, talked about a lot less. People know of it as having happened. They know there was a Yom Kippur right. war. They know Egypt had a surprise attack. But I would argue... That's probably the, 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 the gist of it. That's what they yeah. know. Oh, uh, you know, we have to protect ourselves because look what happened on Yom Kippur 1973, the Arabs' surprise attack on our holiest day. Yeah, I don't even mm. know that people are thinking about that. I, I think... This is the last time an Arab nation state attacked Israel, and I think Israel now lives in a world where we don't expect Arab nation states to attack us. We expect terror or, you know, in theory, obviously, Iran is a, is a, is a viable threat that we have to be concerned with. Or illegitimate rulers such as Hamas and Gaza. Right. Which is not technically a nation state. It's not a member state of the UN attacking us. Yeah, correct. And so that has receded so far back in our brains that we think that's normal. Yeah, which until 1973 was not a norm that Israelis could depend right. on. But it's become that because of 1973. And that's why 1973 right. is such a watershed. One could say 
as much a watershed as 1967. I mean, I think that— Or basically, we them together, really. 67, 73 are almost really but the impact, linked. But the impact of the two of them are different, because 67 can be seen in geographic terms. Like, you look Correct. at the map of Israel after 67, it's significantly different from how it looked before the Six-Day War. Whereas, what are the indicators, what are the, the, the significant— clues almost that you see of the impact of 73 you're talking about things which are much harder than less tangible the- i disagree i think that so so first of all just the fact that israel doesn't expect to be invaded anymore i think that's a pretty major right, tangible but I'm, difference. But I'm saying that's not for me that's not i'm not talking about something physical that's not tangible when we go to visit different places like hebron or gush etzion that's as a direct result of 1967 well, how often do you? So, it, it, I think that the impacts of seventy three are going to be in the things, places we don't go. For okay. instance, the Sinai Peninsula. Most people mm. aren't comfortable going to Sinai, and I think it's. Oh in, well, that's, uh, that's not because Ameri- maybe American Jews, Israelis, Israelis like, do in, go in there the more. Tens of thousands just yeah. flock yeah. there during these holidays. And that's yeah. not because of, of that's not because of relationships with Egypt. The the fear now comes from terrorist organizations. Not no no no. The very fact that Sinai is not part of is I would Israel. argue that Camp David is a very direct outcome of the seventy. War. Yes, of course. Okay. So I thirty years of peace with Egypt. Okay. Thirty years of peace with Egypt is going to be uh, a very big outcome of this war. So, so let, let, let's go yeah, through. Let's, uh, let's okay. Step, step by back. step. Yeah. Let's take a step back at the history. So I, w- I would say that you you were Alan. You were alluding to the fact that not so different than how World War II is essentially an outcome of World War One. Seventy three right. is largely an outcome of sixty seven. Yeah, absolutely. It's a, it is one hundred percent. So I will go first, and one of the ways that that's, uh, I think, absolutely yeah. true, aside from the fact that it's a war to reconquer the Sinai, to regain Egyptian mm-hmm. honor for having lost it to Israel, on the Israeli side, it, it, the, the sense of overwhelming Israeli uh, hubris, the sense of self-confidence that Israel cannot be defeated, is a major factor in 73. So you have the Arabs wanting to reconquer which leads to 73. Right. And you have the Israelis thinking, well, we did so well in 67. Nobody has a shot. They can try, but we'll just take them down without a real problem. Right. I mean, that's, you know, that's certainly uh, going on that, that, that what is it, a uh, six-year period between 67 and 73. There's also a war that happens in there that- Of attrition. Uh, yeah. Of attrition that nobody really talks, I mean, talks about outside of history class, mm-hmm. 69 and 70, which is a fairly lots of casualties, a war of attrition on the Sinai line between Egypt and Israel, because Egypt had said they needed that Sinai back. And, uh, and of course, the, the Syrians wanted the Golan back. And the Jordanians really stayed out of the whole thing. They kind of, you know, they, they had felt pulled into 67. They lost their land. They were not getting pull, pulled back in. And Sadat, when he came in and, uh, in the early 70s, had really put on the thing that he's getting that Sinai back, um, whether it was either through political or military means. And there was a, a stalemate politically. So the Arabs decided that uh, to, to break that stalemate, to launch that surprise attack. And it was and, a brilliant, um, it wasn't just the surprise attack itself. There was a whole yeah. brilliant uh, Boyu cried wolf strategy yeah. of the Egyptians sure. mobilizing on the border, the Israelis mobilizing in self-defense, 
and then the Egyptians backing away, right. which and, had major impacts on the Israeli economy. Right, in the spring before, in 73, in the spring before. I mean, that's a brilliant strategy. Yeah. That's a that, feint. You think that was an intentional uh, strategy? Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And then this time when they're we're in 73, when they're building up, they're calling it military exercises, and, and, and Israel get into this conception, as they call it, the concept, which is that until the Egyptians and the Syrians have um, uh, parity in the air, they will not attack Israel. They will not invade Israel. Maybe limited attack here or there, cross-border or something, but not a major attack infiltration because they don't have air parity. And that's where Israel really dropped the ball. Well, um, in 67, Israel eliminated the correct. Egyptian Air Force. And it's a truism of modern warfare that air power will not win you a war, but you cannot win a war without air power. Correct. So the Israelis felt strategically the Egyptians won't engage in war right. without air power. And so they fought, but the Egyptians, um, uh, between missiles and other, uh, you know, air protection, so they um, came to a different conclusion. <laughs> uh, with their, with their Syrian, with yeah. their connection with the Syrians right. in the Syrians, north, yes. that if they, if they timed this perfectly, they could knock out Israeli forces before right. Israel could get back on uh, its feet. Uh, they knew toe to toe they'd fail, but if they could, it's a, it's a little bit of thinking like an American for a second, it's a little bit of Pearl Harbor logic. The Japanese knew they couldn't defeat the American fleet, but if they could knock it out in a surprise shot, then they would, they could, they had a chance at victory. And I think Egypt, that's, right. that's the Egyptian Syrian logic that why they defied the Israeli military logic uh, in attack. And it's also the, with their victory that they're going after. The, the, the Sadat is going after, for, he wants to get the Sinai back. So he doesn't even feel like he has to conquer the whole Sinai. He really just has to break the, the stalemate. Um, and in Syria, they just feel like they, if they can go quick enough, they can take the whole Golan in that, in that first couple days. They were really predicting a war to the Russians that was going to last a couple days. Mm-hmm. Um, but they so caught the Israelis off guard um, that uh, that it went on for three weeks because one of the one of the Israeli changes in the end was well they were going to destroy the other armies that it wasn't going to so whereas uh, the Egyptians and the Syrians got the uptake first Israel of course came back and were and were told to stand down by America when they were marching on towards Damascus and Cairo. Really. The Israeli forces, yeah. Israeli tanks were literally miles out of Cairo. Yeah, they were getting ready to topple. This this was such a shock. This not only the attack. That was a, a, a surprise. Not only attack, a, a surprise on Yom Kippur. The Israeli forces on the border, who were the standing army, Israel didn't mobilize. Right, didn't mobilize till the morning of Yom Kippur. So, and you have, which is I mean, late. I, I find that my students don't realize the devastating effect of the losses of 73 had on Israeli right. society. So about 3,000 dead soldiers, which was the second largest. Which, which sounds like, a, which on the one hand, yes, it's the second largest in, in any Israeli history war. But also, if you think about it in terms, we were talking before about World War One leading to World War Two, and we're talking about those kinds of wars, and you say it was three weeks as opposed to five or six years. It doesn't right. sound that significant in that way when you look at right. it purely numerically or statistically, but the psychological impact... Well, huge. it's also, you have to remember the numbers. And even though the numbers, when we compare yep. numbers, are always weird because 3,000 doesn't sound like a lot either, especially talking about the Holocaust. That was right. that was a, a, a third of a day in Auschwitz, right? About, but here you're talking about 3 million 
um, citizens of Israel about mm-hmm. at the time. There was no Israeli family that didn't know, yeah. have a, 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 a direct member, a nation, well, neighbor, or someone who was not wounded or, or killed. That generation of 18 to 21-year-old can all go through, I don't know how much yeah. of them have, how many of them really have high school yearbooks as we think of them, but, <laughs> but in theory, they could all go through their high school yearbooks. Let's not get into high school yearbook. <laughs> Wrong week for that. <laughs> but they could go through their high school yearbooks and just check off they all knew people who were killed. It yeah. was it was intense. It was brutal. Right. It was chaotic. You had people, when they called for mobilization, there wasn't a, a well-executed plan. Right. You had people getting into any vehicle that moved and just running to one or the yeah. other fronts, especially to the north, and just jumping into the chaos. And it took them days and days to get organized into military discipline. Absolutely. And then when they came, what came clear was clearer almost from the beginning from those who had been there at the beginning, the, the, the guys on the, on the front lines, was a complete failure by the, the military um, uh, upper levels of the military and uh, at the highest levels. What do you mean by that? That's right. What, what, that I, well, the, the, look, the, the main one, if we can really compare it to like 9-11, it wasn't a failure of intelligence gathering. It was a failure of assessment of the intelligence. All the intelligence, it wasn't even, you didn't even need intelligence. The five Egyptian brigades were public information. Were lining up in the Sinai and and coordinating so, with the Syrians. Coordinating with Syrians and the head of Israel's uh, army intelligence, who really pushed the whole thing. A guy named Zamir. He had this conception that that he really convinced everybody of with this air parody, and no matter what, would shake him from this conception even till almost. Two o'clock on Kippur afternoon with the invasion, and uh, that failure. He knew he was know, right. He knew they, this yeah. was not going to be an actual invasion. Correct, and and he was so I guess you know charismatic and powerful. This and that 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 really everybody went along with. Not everybody went along. There were those who disagreed, but his day, his his word um, ran the day. Um, so when that becomes clear, so there's actually an election right after the war. Which the government stays in. Golda Meir is the prime minister, and and Moshe Dayan's the defense minister, um, and they all stay in. They win after that. But after the commission, there's a big commission called the Agronaut Commission, um, who identifies a lot of the problems. Golda Meir resigns. Um, Moshe Dayan des- resigns, and that's actually I think the first watershed. There's like two watersheds in this, and Matt was talking about the changes that it will bring in Israeli society. And if you want to feel the impact today, the fact that Bibi is like the longest lasting prime minister, the right only get a chance to take over with the fall of the founders. Right, but even before that, right. look at this change, it's interesting. Who comes in after Golda Meir and Moshe Dayan resign? Who comes in as prime minister and defense minister? Yitzhak Rabin and Shimon Peres. So what yeah. happens is you have the change from the old yeah. labor guard to the new generation. It's the, so, you know, it's well, the founder generation to yeah. the, their, prodi- their prodigies. Absolutely. You know, it's like a, a Jefferson to Madison right. transfer. And and if we're foreshadowing ourselves here a little bit, right? We talk about Shimon Perez and Yitzhak Rabin come in and replace them. They will be the ones in another, you know, uh, in the in the '90s to to the Oslo Agreement with the Palestinians, which we'll talk about. That's one of our dates coming up. that we're going to talk about. Mm-hmm. So we see that that those seeds are already being planted from this really major change. Well, they don't fall from leadership of labor, but the the fall of the found. I mean. They're going to stay leaders in labor, even Who? as labor falls. Who's going to stay? 
Rabin and, and no, I'm saying, yeah, gonna, I'm yeah, saying exactly. labor. They stay. They the, yeah. the old guard of labor falls. Yeah, so you have this new guard that comes in that will will bring us to Oslo and all that. And in the meantime, of course, now that happens Short after term, that, before that even can happen, yeah. you have the fall of labor Correct. itself. That they're going to be it, Rabin and Paris are going to be at the helm Correct. as labor falls to Likud and and Begin taking in, over the government. And Correct that's, in 1977. That's an. I mean, that's a tectonic shift in Israeli politics. Yeah, because absolutely, because from forty eight to nineteen seventy seven, the labor, which we would call the the left, even if you want to call them centrist left, whatever, the left will control Israeli political discourse. And from nineteen seventy seven till today, with lapses, we'll talk about the Oslo and all that. We really have the right and the Likud who's controlling a lot of the of the discourse. But do you not think that's also to do with demo, like demographics, that that's why the, the rights are able to control things more? Because of the way demographics... It depends what you mean by demographics. If you, it, the electorate. It, because I don't think it's just a result of an event that happened 45 years ago that you can say that the right wing is now still controlling what's uh, happening in I the country. I agree 100%. 100%. Well, but, but you see that first break in that control happens in 1977, post... post right. um, uh, uh, Yom Kippur War. It's not only that; it's also, you know, what social issues that were happening before the Yom Kippur War, like um, the Black Panther movement in Israel, right? Of of Sephardim wanting more of their share of the pie that they felt they weren't getting. Right? There were there were a lot of things. Well, going labor on. Labor had a self identity as the party of Zionism and the party right. of Israel. We right. are the people who made Israel. Everybody else. Right are benefiting from our running of Israel. That disenfranchised an enormous portion of the electorate, not only the political right who disagreed with them and were disenfranchised, but also largely Svartim, who who weren't, weren't bought into the European socialist, you know, Marxist concept of what Zionism was. So there's a lot of factors that lead to uh, the rise of the right, but... And and I don't know that 1973 would have been the cause, but it was. It, in other words, it wasn't a necessary cause. The right would have taken. There would have been a political shift in Israel one way or the other, but the res- resignation of Golda Meir in dishonor, uh, uh, and and Rabin's own scandals, and and, and in other yeah. words, the 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 idea of Israel was these are the leaders, and the the Israeli let's say swing voter is always going to vote for these leaders that was broken because of seventy three and the possibility of the demographic shift leading to a rise of the right was enabled by the results of seventy three so could it have been something else would it have inevitably have been something else probably, probably. Yeah. turns out what it was historically was seventy three right that's what did it uh, right and so that that's sort of uh you know you have to see that as a, a, a really as a watershed more more in 67 so uh, so far we have so the breaking of israeli hubris by the way to right. this day huh. kibbutznikim there are there are kibbutznikim who still talk about what are they doing to the israel that we built like there are people who come who grew up in that labor yeah. world and they still feel like their israel has been hijacked well, for sure. I mean, certainly that generation, because of the privatization, uh, you know, will lead to the transformation of Israel from a socialist to a capitalist economy. Not when Baby becomes finance minister in the 90s, yeah. he's going to change the structure. Kibbutzim are going to have to adapt. The The original yeah. concept of Israel has shifted. Yeah. And this is this is all. And you're right. There's a there's a great number of factors. But to leave out seventy three, I think is to. No, you can see seventy three is the beginning of the march there. If we see these things that we were just talking about, right? The hubris changing Israeli, this idea that we're invincible was a very big change, I think, in Israeli consciousness. 
that's also the same idea, changing the invincibility of the, of the old guard, mm-hmm. right? You're breaking down, you're going in a real time, you're deconstructing the myth that <laughs> uh, well, uh, of this all-powerful generation. It's also very hard for us to understand what 67 did in terms of creating that myth, right. that myth of the inevitable rise of Israel. Oh, 48, look what we did. 67, yeah. look what we did. We right. are invincible and, and we are only on the march. We are only moving forward. And 73, which Israel, by any measurable standard, won that war. Well, but not, it was not according to the Egyptians or the Syrians. Right. Well, Sadat so was assassinated. <laughs> so their measurable standard is so obviously different to your measurable right. standard. But. Well, no, I don't think so. I think that that's a political reality in the Arab world that you claim victory even if there is no measurable standard. That's a that's a rhetorical tool, not an actual. Right, but none of them were claiming victory in '67. None of the the Arab states. I don't think. No, were yeah, sure they did. But if 73 was a reaction to losses of territory and land yeah. and things like that. But they came out of 73 with no territory. So here's, I, want, I want to throw another thing that changes in Israel's history, which we usually associate with 67, which is actually not true so much, which is the settlement movement. We associate with right. 1967, and that's where it starts. But the truth is there's only a few settlements in very, very – like national consciousness after 67. Well, the first one goes up in Kfartzion in 1967. To, right, we want to go home. And Hebron starts, but right. really you don't have a lot of settlements. And what happens is uh, Hanan Porat, um, who is the one of the children who was evacuated in 48 from Kfartzion, is the leader of going back to Kfartzion. Um, he was one of the paratroopers who fought in Jerusalem and got to the Kotel, right? In 73, he's hurt. He's, he's injured, and he's lying injuries like he's doing a cheshbon effort, right? Checking himself, what's going on? What is this all about? He says, it's because we haven't done enough to settle Yehudah V'Shemron, right? And he comes invigorated after this, and actually Gushi Monim, which is the, the organization that's founded to expand settlement in, in the Judea and Samaria, is only formed after 1973 with this new infusion. Okay, almost like, oh, 73 happened because we didn't do enough to settle <laughs> Judea and Samaria. Well, we got, we got, we got, we we rested on our laurels. We yeah. got lazy, and we didn't push forward. And if you're not moving forward, you're moving backwards. Right, exactly. And so that's what we see now in Israeli society. So we have to continue that pioneering spirit into the future. And in Hanan Parat's head, and, and many of yeah. the, his followers, the idea was where where do you move forward? What's the next frontier? Yeah, right. Got to be Judea and Samaria. Yeah, and so. It's both, obviously. It's 67, but 73 is a major... But in terms of the consciousness of a a real settlement, settler movement, it's really the settler movement begins after 73, I think, is is more, is clear. Um, So you have really, it's it's these markers. Mm -hmm. It's it's really a marker that we don't often think about. It gets gets hidden behind 67. I think we think of 67 as making these change when it's really that whole period. Yeah. It's the, it's the, it's the lift of 67 and the crushing, uh, uh, failures, even though we won the war, but the, the, the Israel's failures in 73, that leads to a whole new. Right. But again, the, the physical nature of the settler movement, like the actual, I don't know what the word is, but the material, um, possibility of it happening was born in 67 almost, and then it was realized by what you're saying is an actual movement. But without 67 and without those conquests, then that a movement wouldn't have done anything. Correct. Yeah. But without need, 73, there wouldn't be people living got, there. You needed if, military yeah. control if in you order want, for it to happen. If you want to go to well, Ofra, sure. 
right? Like that, that it, it, it right, of course. No, yeah, I, 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 I don't think, I don't think in any way we're trying to minimize the no, impact. No, I, I didn't say that. I'm just clarifying. For yeah, yeah. Our, but yeah. it's, you, but everything gets swallowed up in '67 when it's really a combination of '67, '73. Right. That is this major turning point as Israel turns from the '60s to the '70s. Right, because right. also if you think about 48, 67, it's like kind of this upward trajectory. And 73 brings you crashing down again. And so you're saying, well, how do you get that lift again? And I guess that was one I mean, not lift. for today's podcast. I think 82 is another big crash that right. totally changes Israel in major ways that we leave out. I think the first Lebanon. The first Lebanon war, for yeah, I sure. Think, yeah, but I mean, these are things. That's why we're gonna, we're talking about them now because they're things that I, I, I even leave them out in class when I have yeah. limited time. And I always feel bad about that because I know how important they are. Um, but it's, you know, obviously when you have to make decisions in terms of timing and how much material you can do, but 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 they're really... Well, that's why I think we should have an Israel history podcast where we get to do <laughs> the thing right. But that's, a, that's also another conversation. That's for another, a, something we've been talking about. Yeah. Um, all right. So can you give, can you give some insight into you? I know Alan, you were bringing quotes of just what the experience of 73 was like in a way that's sort of what the human element. So, um, first of all, there was the, the surprise of it is that the population wasn't ready for it. I hope not, but we can see in our time living over here, even over the last weekend, the government getting the population ready for extended conflict or war. That's what's happening in Gaza now, right? There's this whole thing going on with how much and where we're going with it. And if you read the papers, you pay attention. Part of that is the government preparing the the population for it. 67, we know they were digging, um, you know, we know they were digging mass graves and stadiums and filling- and public parks. In and public parks and filling sandbags. In 1973, they, nobody was ready. Nobody was talking about it. Any, any war, I mean, even though people who were stationed on the border were like, oh, war is coming. They could see it. People at home were not. And when the call came, it, people started disappearing from synagogues. People, um, you know, started getting called up. It was it was a shock. And all of a sudden, at 2, two o'clock in the afternoon, when air raid sirens went off, people didn't even know what was happening, where it was coming from. Um, and that was, that was of course, um, very shocking. And then when they start hearing about the casualties, about the, the, the intense war, about how far the Syrians and the Egyptians actually get in terms of territory before Israel pushes them back, which of course will only become much clearer later. So all of this really comes together. Well, and, and personal imagine, experiences. I, just picture being a soldier in the Golan. Let's yeah. say you're a commander, so maybe you're a, a young married with kids, yeah. and you watch Syrian tanks in enormous number, and you know that you have they have the absolute strategic advantage. So the most right, the most the most famous couple of the most famous um, uh, stories. One you have Tzvika, I just forgot his last name. He's called Tzvika Force. Call Tzvika was one of these. You know the legendary about you can go you know you can go read about him online, or maybe we'll put a uh, a link on uh, about how he held off and and it. But where did he come from? He was a kibbutz member of Kibbutz Lochame Gitaot of the the fighter ghetto's fighters kibbutz. His parents were survivors of the Warsaw ghetto, of the fighting, right? So here you have this guy who's leaving his kibbutz, a young man, 
is a lieutenant, I think, if I remember correctly, uh, tank uh, tank commander, is leaving his his kibbutz. It's called after the Warsaw Ghetto fighters who died Which in Warsaw. Which was placed where it was to keep the yeah. Ar- Arab forces from getting to Jerusalem. Right. It's, it's there to be a blockade. And he, you know, it, it's terrifying. Yeah. And so, so imagine in his mind what's going on about what's thinking about it. Um, and there are also reports that Israel was loading its nukes. It actually was considering using using its nukes uh, at the time. I mean, the 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 devastation and the fear, because again, when we talk about the hubris, but we also have to talk about we're still how many years away from how many we're less than thirty years away from the the Holocaust, mm-hmm. <laughs> and people were literally the survivors thinking, are young and vital and running the country. Yeah, and people are literally, um, you know, were you know in this place of fear. And that is... Uh, By the way, another big shift is the America, the special relationship with America, which correct. in 67, Israel felt America largely let it down. Israel was, first of all, fighting 67 with French weapons. Yeah. In 67, they felt America didn't really have our back enough. 73 comes, and Kissinger is pushing very hard on the Israelis not to respond, to prevent a war with right. the Egyptians, and helps build that consensus that leads to the miscalculation. Right. After Israel's attack... And is desperately in need of weapons. President Nixon orders a huge weapons shipment. Yeah, which saves Israel because if they don't have those weapons shipments, they can they cannot fight a three week war. We don't have enough weapons. And Israel begins to arm itself with largely American weapons. Yeah. and the relationship is Israel as America's client in the Middle East. Yeah, largely becomes formed through that. Right. through that event. And right. And by the way, on the other side, we haven't really talked about the Egyptians. On the other side, the Egyptians are also starting to turn towards America, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? This, this war for them is a watershed. Um, there were a number of um, overtures and, and outright um, talk from Sadat that he wanted a non-belligerence pact. He, w- he would offer non-belligerence pact before Yom Kippur War for a return of the Sinai. Mm-hmm. Israel, of course, was not willing to consider a non-belligerence pact. He, you know, Israel said, so you want to talk peace? Let's talk peace. Not a non-belligerence tack, uh, uh, pact. Um, and so when we say Sadat was trying to break the stalemate, part of that was also moving away from that dependency on Soviet Union. Mm-hmm. Um, they had kind of already were starting to break it before the Yom Kippur War. So that I, I was re- I was telling you guys before about um, there's this great book on this. Uh, I think it's, it's the best book that I've read on it. It's called The Yom Kippur War by Abraham Rabinovich. He's a longtime military correspondent at Jerusalem Post. Um, he wrote. It, it, it's a great book. Anyway, at the end of his book, his end of the book ends with two, the um, uh, the Israeli troops at the front line and the Egyptian troops front line, and how they were actually started talking mm-hmm. after the ceasefire, even before the ceasefire, and how the Israeli commander went over to the side and said, "Listen, the war is like it's dying down. Neither of us wants our guys to get killed. Let's just like make a pact not to shoot at each other." And as the ceasefire comes in, they're actually going across and having tea and playing backgammon together, guys who were just fighting before. And there's a lot of this respect. That's what Mike was talking about earlier, about that the Egyptians needed that respect. Now the Israelis actually have a lot of respect for the Egyptian fighters, where it is 67, they're like, oh, we picked them off like, you know, uh, um, toy soldiers. Now there's a lot of respect. They're having tea. One of the conversations that... um, Two of the commanders have on the side is the Israeli. Israeli says, you know, um, like, you know, do you think there's going to be a ceasefire? And this is this um, Egyptian major, Major Ali says, no, Sadat wants peace, 
right? So that one's peace. It turns out this guy had a high, one of his uncles was very high commander, maybe even the head of the Egyptian army. Um, so there's already some in that Egyptian Sadat, whose echelon, public rhetoric yeah. was, will allow, well, I'm willing to sacrifice a million Egyptian lives to win back the Sinai, yeah. was actually in reality already playing with the idea of peace. Yeah. Which, when his generals come to him and say, well, that was our best shot. 73 was our best shot. Yeah. You're, if you want the Sinai, it's going to have to be diplomatic. Yeah. So the shock that we felt, and this I also remember. I remember the shock of Sadat announcing, I'll yeah, yeah. go to the Knesset and Begin saying, you're more than welcome. Mm-hmm. And showing up, I remember watching that on television. Yeah, that huge earthquake in the Middle East, also largely because of seventy three, right? And which will and, and will lead to Camp David. That's clear. Yeah. It will lead to Camp David in peace with Egypt, which is what we're going to talk about next time. Yeah. And I also I remember sitting. They took. I was at a Kiba Hebrew Academy. They took the entire school into the auditorium, which was really the gym. Put up a huge screen, which like never done before. Like who, who put televised live? Um, the meeting at the Camp David, uh, the the signing of the peace treaty with Carter, Sadat, and and Begin. Um, it was really so monumental. And, which is also, by the way, just before we leave seventy three and wrap up, yeah. I just want to point out that there was also a for the for really for the first time in a very long time, you had a large number of Israeli prisoners of war. The Egyptians held a large prison, and that yeah, true, absolutely, that also had major impact yeah, yeah. on people's lives, and it was something. It was very hard for for the Israeli soldiers yeah. to and Agunot, we have to say, women yeah. who were lost, and it was very for the chief rabbinate to having to Rav Goren and Rav Yosef having to having to permit people to get remarried because there were wipeout, you know, yeah. utter, you know, just decimation at the front lines that right. led to. So again, I think I think we do undersell it. I think that it is a a, a, a direct cause of Camp David, which is the next anniversary that we want to talk about and how it impacts us today. So in this three, and the third part will be? Oslo, 25 years since Oslo Accords. Yeah, which we also think is related. We think these three things are linked. We think right. their their anniversaries are coming, and so that's this three part series. That's oh, the we, idea. we forgot to say in the beginning. We should say in the beginning. When's the anniversary? So the Yom Kippur War, we call it Talking Yom Kippur. It's not only past, but the Gregorian anniversary is October sixth, which is today's. I'm lost because second, third, second today. Second. second day is the second. Thanks, I didn't even, I didn't even so, realize we were in October already. But yeah. Okay. So you know, in four days from now, recording. Um, uh, well, is the Gregorian anniversary of the October War, as the Egyptians call it. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah. that's why we thought that this would, uh, you know, yeah, we're nailing the, the, it, man. Right there, we totally nailed yeah. it. That's how awesome we are. <laughs> the Achrei Chagim helped us in this case. Yes, that's right. Um, so, unless major events come up, that's what we'll be working on this month. Right. There are other current events things that we would have probably gone into, like. The brouhaha with uh, with Russia or other things going on that are bubbling under the surface. Right. I have a funny feeling we're not going to run out of current events topics, but yeah. right now we're going to be in this. What are the implications of these anniversaries? Yeah. So, okay. thanks so much, Alan. Thank you, Mike. Thank you, Matt. Thank you. Thank you, Ben. I got a thumbs up from Ben. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and uh, thanks so much, you guys. We're happy to be back. Bye bye. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. Uh, This is the part where I remind you that we are the JU Israel Teacher's Lounge podcast. And it's also the part where I ask you to subscribe, to rate and review us, and to share and recommend us in any way you can. Also, we'd love your feedback so we can respond to you on or off the podcast. Thanks so much for listening, guys. Thanks.